The mystical part of Torah, the Kabbalah, you all know, was uh, kept secret, reserved, uh, not allowed to study it until you're 40 years old, and a scholar in all the other parts of Torah. And, in the, and even then, you had to have a special, sensitive soul. And then you were permitted to study Kabbalah just one-on-one, -on -one, never in the classroom or in public. This changed about 400 years ago. The Ari in Tzvat declared that the time had come to make this wisdom available. Now it's available. Very available. Anyone who wants can study Kabbalah and is studying Kabbalah. And now that we're studying it, the mystery is why was it kept secret? There's nothing dangerous in it. What's the secret? The secret is not something dangerous. Secret means private, personal, intimate. That's secret. From the Torah we know what God wants. But we have no idea what it means to him. He tells us what to do. Thou shalt not, or thou shalt. What's in it for him? How does it matter to him? How much does it matter to him? This we see only in the Kabbalah. In other words, like in any relationship, for the first thousand years, we got to know the facts. The things that were not intensely personal because that comes later but at this stage in history like 400 years ago the relationship between us and God had developed to where we can handle a little more personal insight we can get a little more intimate like how do you get to know your mother it takes a long time and it's not until you're grown up and your mother is getting old, then she starts to reveal a little bit of her truest, deepest feelings and so on. So the Kabbalah really is an insight into God that was not available before because there was the danger that we would humanize it and trivialize it. That's why your mother doesn't show who she really is. Because <laughs> she's afraid you're going to dismiss it as insignificant, and that's going to hurt a lot. The other reason is, as long as God never really showed himself and his personal investment in our relationship, then if we sin, it's forgivable. Oh, I didn't know. I, like every kid says to the parent, I didn't know it was so serious. I didn't know you really cared. But what if we know everything? And our parents bear their souls and we know everything. And we still sin against them. Then it's much harder to forgive. So God left that information for the end of history so that we could be forgiven for our mistakes. Now that we know, 
the forgiveness is no longer necessary. We have gained forgiveness by our painful, long, miserable history. Mm. Now we deserve only reward, so why not? Why not reveal the secrets? The ultimate secret, I think we'll get to talk about this. The ultimate secret is the statement in the Zohar, God, Torah, and Jews are all one. We're not related, we're one, inseparable. There was never God without Torah, there is no Torah without God, there's no God without the Jewish souls because we're a piece of him, there's no soul without God, it's all one. So Judaism takes on a whole new meaning. The mitzvah is not to get you closer to him, you're one with him. So now, why do we need the mitzvahs? That is a whole new, it's a whole new light. This is um, a very, that's a more difficult topic for me, the mitzvahs, because what I have learned is that we exist, we come back into the world because we haven't completed our learning, and there are, I'm going to get a little, little complicated here, but feel free to stop me and re, you know, reroute me if, if it's getting too complicated. From what I understand, the human soul is made of 613 parts, which then correspond to the 613 mitzvot. And, and then it gets even more complicated from there, but I won't, I won't get to that. And so, when we are reborn into this world and we are meant to really evolve ourselves, it is through the learning of actually moving through doing the 613 mitzvot to the best of our ability that we then evolve to our next incarnation. Otherwise, we're kind of stuck in this cycle of birth and death that doesn't necessarily take us anywhere. And one of the things that's a little bit more difficult for me um, as somebody who's a psychologist to support the way that I support most of the other Torah concepts with science and psychology is some of the more um, difficult to reach mitzvot that may not apply as much to modern times and how that corresponds with the evolution of the human soul. Can you speak to that a little bit? I think we have to, we have to add one more, one more uh, ingredient here. Evolving into what we're supposed to be does not move us further from God, but closer to God. In other words, evolving to the maximum that a human can be means dissolving into God, not becoming more human. The way to do that, of course, is through divine, not human, activity. So the mitzvot, they're all divine activity, not human. So the objective, like uh, the difference between pop psychology and real psychology, 
The healing doesn't come by becoming more me. It comes by becoming less me. But if less me, then where am I going? I don't want to dissolve into nothingness. Less me means more him. Mm. Isn't that a good description of a marriage? Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's an amazing description because one of the things that I personally have struggled with in my journey is that when you're raised in this city, I was raised in the city since I was seven. I was an immigrant and moved here during the Iranian Revolution and was here since I was seven. There was no access to what I would call true Orthodox Judaism or what we had in Iran, which was basically orthodoxy, but in a conservative fashion so to speak, but the, the core of the Judaism that was taught was true. It, it aligned with orthodoxy. Here, um, we had con a conservative temple that's one of the biggest conservative temples in America, and that was where most Persian Jews walked. And what was taught at that temple was that Torah is not applicable to all the ages. It is there are certain aspects of Torah that are not applicable to modern times, which, from what I understand, is absolutely untrue. Um, so what, what I did on my path was move towards uh, Buddhist teachings, because Buddhist teachings, to me, felt like little sort of tangents of what Kabbalah taught, the little bit that I could understand as a young person, and the difference, what I found, once I hit 40, <laughs> and not before that, was that the difference between Buddhism, which seeks ego relinquishment to the point of no, no me, no, no non-existence, is different than Jewish belief in ego relinquishment, where there is... There is a me, but that me becomes one with a higher being. So you are consistently in service mode of Hashem in the way that it is actually dictated, but you are not losing yourself. And one example of that for me was that when I would, you know, there's, there's been moments in my life where I've achieved or, or done a great healing or, or helped in someone achieving something good in their life, and they would say, aren't you so proud of yourself? Wow, you did this, you did this. And I would just sit there and say, this is all Hashem. This is all Hashem. And there would be zero sense of self in that. But once I really understood the differentiation between what I had learned for the first 25 years and what I've learned since then in the next 25 years was that there's a little sense of self, but even that self comes from the self that matters comes from Hashem, but it is a self. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about this idea of ego relinquishment in the Jewish way from you. Uh, to, to put it in, in practical terms, it is so much easier to admit that I am wrong than to admit that you are right. Is that not true? Mm. It, there's no comparison. 
People who are perfectly comfortable and able to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I made a mistake. I was wrong. I'm so stupid. They can do that. And it doesn't hurt their ego. But to admit that somebody else is right, they can't. Wow. Their ego will wow. not allow it. The self-effacement in Buddhism is I am nothing, I am wrong, my needs, my wants are nothing. Why? Because I'm nothing. So I'm wrong. And who's right? Nobody. Mm. The universe, or whatever right, that means. Right, right, whatever that means, exactly. So, there is no you're right in Buddhism. There's I'm wrong. Hmm. Wow. Fascinating thing is that most of Buddhism and Hinduism, all the Eastern philosophy, came from Avraham. Wow. Avraham, after Sarah passed away, married Keturah. Right? And they had children. And Avraham gave them, the children of Keturah, he gave them a gift and sent them to the east. Mm -hmm. They moved to the east. Mm -hmm. The original philosophy in the east was called Brahman, or Ibrahim, or Abraham. Wow. So wow. what... What Avraham gave his children is his philosophy before God spoke to him. Hmm. For 75 years, Avraham was an incredible philosopher, believed in God, taught the belief in God, sacrificed his life for the belief of God, but he had never heard from God. So it was all, I'm wrong. I'm not it. I'm not the answer. Wow. I am not the end. But what is? Don't know. When God came and said, I need. You're right. It's not your need. It's my need. He said, okay, you guys take the philosophy and go to China. <laughs> yeah, wow. And we are going to continue the study of what God needs, and that will be Judaism. Hmm. So, the humility that we're talking about is not, I'm nothing. I'm here for him. And this is really, even the Orthodox world, even some people who study Kabbalah, miss the point. They're afraid of it, actually. The entire point of Judaism is, you think you need your needs are petty compared to God's need. And that's why we are very willing to serve him and do what he needs because his need is awesome. My need is sometimes embarrassing. Mm. Isn't the beauty of that in serving a higher force and our creator we are actually actualizing our own potential. It is through that journey of serving our higher yes. creator. That's our highest potential, that we can mm. be there for him. Mm. There's nothing higher. But here's a really beautiful thought. 
What's one of the unique things about a, about a human being that separates us from the animal, the vegetable, and the mineral? Listen to this. The nature of a human being, not religion, nature. The nature of a human being is that he is never content being human. The animal is content to be an animal, just don't interfere. The vegetable is content to be a vegetable, just don't interfere, don't step on it. And the mineral is perfectly happy to be a mineral, just don't crush it. The human being does not find contentment in being human. Hmm. In other words, I have to become something more than I was created to be. But what is more? So in some desperate ways, human beings try to become animals because I'm not content being human. Mm. So I want to run like a deer in Olympic uh, com competition. I want to fly through the air like a bird. I want to swim like a fish. We can't quite catch up. <laughs> the deer is still faster and the eagle is still, you know. Wow. So that's not the direction to go in. What do we do to be something other than human? That's, those are the mitzvot. Mm. Rabbi, one question is, and one of my, my greatest frustrations, is that most Jews are naturally sort of divorced from the soul realm. And I believe that that's one of the most quintessential reasons for their any kind of um, psychological, physical, or spiritual distress that they're in. And when you look at most, like outside of Hasidism, most synagogues, the only thing that most Jews are exposed to is the Sidur. And then when there is a, outside of Hasidism, and the Sidur is from, again, what I understand, primarily code. So there's a lot of what Jews get is, is you know, if you don't do this, God's going to get angry at you. If you don't do that, he's going to be mad at you. You know, things that I don't associate with Judaism at all, that I, I feel God is all love and the only reason that you would be punished is not because God is punishing you, but because you are doing things of eras, sins, that are distancing you from God, so he can't protect you in that moment. And so why is it that there isn't a greater um, drive from Jewish leaders to connect Jews with their soul? Because that's where healing lies. And... and that's where disease emanates from, in my opinion, as a psychologist. It's when you are really incapable of connecting with your own soul's purpose, your own soul's drive, your own soul's brilliance, that you are moving towards any kind of disease, psychological or otherwise. So professionally, why are children, adult children, terrified? 
of hearing their parents' needs. Why is that so terrifying? Why would they lose respect if they hear that their parents need them more than they need their parents? Why is that scary? People are terrified of the idea that God needs me more than I need him, which is the absolute truth. Because I didn't create him. He created me. Well, then obviously he's the one with the need. It's just so obvious, but scary. So most people who don't study Hasidut, they're terrified. They hear this idea, they run away. Literally, they shut down. Hmm. So I got to have this little incident. I get a phone call from a father in Israel. I, have, I have not, don't know him, he doesn't know me. He has a problem. His 12-year-old daughter got it into her head that God was angry at her, and she's all distressed. Wow. They went for therapy, they went to rabbis, they even went to Kabbalah for uh, mystical healing. Nothing helps. Mm. And then he did something that is really distasteful. But He says, here, talk to her. And he puts her on the line. Mm. Oh. So I said to her, God is angry at you? She says, yeah. I said, I'm so jealous. <laughs> wow. She said, what? What an answer. I said, you're 12 years old and you can get God angry? How did you become so important? Mm. Wow. <laughs> Problem went away. Wow. Now she goes telling her friends, God's angry at me. Not you. You're not important. <laughs> mm. When God gets angry at us, we don't have to explain it away. Yeah, he's angry. Why is he angry? Because he cares. How does he not get angry? And how are we supposed to respond? <laughs> wow, I didn't think I was so important. And that's why when we read in the Torah that God gets angry at us, nobody faints. <laughs> nobody, nobody walks out traumatized. In fact, there's that portion in the Torah where God describes the horrible punishments he's going to bring on us. You know, yeah. Like four pages worth. Yeah. You're going to suffer, you're going to die, you're going to go crazy, you're going to be crushed. You're going to... Whoa, whoa. It's like, it literally sounds like a holocaust. We read this in the Torah. And what do we do right afterwards? You go into the social hall and you make kiddush and you have a kichol and you go home. Like, nobody sits there trembling. Hmm. Why? It's your father talking. Wow. So his anger is a compliment, not a threat. Hmm. So here's, here's what we need to do to get to the finish line. God is not a perfectly indifferent creature who has no feelings, no needs, no reactions except anger. Hmm. You've got a distorted picture of him. Truly. 
Who He's a one-trick pony. Yeah. The only thing he knows how to do is get angry. angry. It's, it's a ridiculous... Everything that we have comes from him, right? We're created in his image. So if I have anger, he has divine, infinite anger. Not no anger. If I have a little bit of knowledge, he knows everything. Infinite knowledge. If I have a need, it's just a tiny example of his infinite true need. So much so, when a person says, I need, you got to be careful. You're playing God. God created the world with a plan. You mess up his plan, he gets angry. I didn't create the world and I have no plan. Why am I getting angry? So to get angry is to act like God. To say, I need, is to act like God. To say, I know everything, is to act like God. And yet, what you're taught in every school, in every shul, in every synagogue, in every Hebrew class, you need God desperately. He needs nothing. Oh, this is, this is a bad relationship. But like an abused wife. <laughs> We're needy, and we keep begging, and we keep pleading, and he just punishes away <laughs> like there's no end. That's an abusive relationship. Right. To think that God can get angry at us is a huge compliment. We love it. Mm. We're being noticed. We count. We, we mean something. There was an incredible, incredible um, analogy that my teacher, Rabbi Tatz, taught me once. He said, a car cannot function. A car is one of the most practical, important things in the world. It gets you to where you need to go. It gets you to the place where you can do your mitzvahs. It cannot function without a carburetor. And you, each individual in the world, is like that tiny, tiny little nail in the carburetor for which if you didn't exist or if it would fall out, the carburetor wouldn't work. It's super tiny. You can't even see it. But it's the thing that makes the entire thing function. So it's kind of part of what you're saying in that we're very little. We may be, you know, one speckle of sand in an ocean of sand, but each one of us are seen and each one of us matter and each one of us have has our purpose. Uh, there's another very powerful word. What is your purpose? How do you know there's a purpose? Who says there's a purpose? Eat, drink, and be merry, and then die. Who says there's a purpose? And yet everyone throughout history forever has been looking for the purpose. There's no purpose. Relax. <laughs> Why are we so convinced? So I just recently read in the name of Mark Twain. And this, this is something that can, that can serve you for the rest of your life. He said, there are two very important days in your life. 
the day you're born and the day you find out why. Isn't that amazing? It is. It is. It's everything in one little sentence. It is. Well, almost everything. <laughs> because if you meet him and you say, you know, I heard you say that uh, the second significant day in your life is when you figure out why you were born. Why were you born? He doesn't know. Mm. I love that. I love that. Everybody asks the good question. Nobody has an answer. Hmm. I was talking to a minister, Christian minister. We were doing a we were doing a documentary, and he was one of the advisors. So I was introduced to him. The first words out of his mouth, noticing that I was Jewish, <laughs> something gave me away. <laughs> Noticing that I was Jewish, the first words out of his mouth were, so do you believe in the Savior? <laughs> not, not belligerent, not just matter of fact. So I also I answered him in the same way. I said, you know, really, I'm not looking for a God who's going to save me. I'm looking for a God that I can serve, mm. not a God that will serve me. This guy is in his 60s. He started to cry. Wow. He says, I never thought of that. So, if you were to ask Christianity, any branch of Christianity, why are we here? There's no answer. You're here and you're in trouble. He will save you and, and protect you from hell and get you into heaven. Yeah, but why are we here? Don't know. That's a really interesting concept because one of my, I, I consider it one of my most important teachings from a psychological standpoint is um, the drama triangle. I didn't create it, but I teach it. And the drama triangle is where most humans come into this world from a conception or perception that every relationship in the world they have is made of a hero or savior, a villain or predator, and a victim. And so when they are born into the world, for most families, the dad is generally the predator or villain, the mom is usually the savior, most families. And they're usually the victim that's being saved. And so they repeat and project this unconscious diagram, this unconscious triangle onto most of the relationships in their life. And I believe that this comes from primarily Christian, living in a Christian country, living in a Christian world, and this idea of Christianity where, you know, someone died for your sins, and therefore you're, you're born a sinner and your entire life is meant to sort of make up for that. Um, just, just like when we spoke earlier um, in our promotional video, we talked about how possibly this separation between church and state has moved into the psychology of most people and separated them from their own spiritual existence. 
I wonder if that's also something that has colored Jewish thought in regards to themselves. They've adopted this because this idea of victimhood is a very difficult thing to move most of my clients out of. Even Judaism, without the Kabbalah part, makes you the victim. And that's very sad. Because it's not supposed to be that way. Wow. In fact, it's also very fascinating. The fairy tales, the classical fairy tales. Bruno Bettelheim? Completely, yes. The, the uses of enchantment? Yes. He doesn't say the father is the, is the predator. It's the evil stepmother right. or the fairy godmother. Right. Th those are the... Yes. And who is the hero? The simpleton. Mm -hmm. Not the smart, not, not the, the big shots, not the, the simple country bumpkin. Right. And how does he become a hero? He serves a higher authority, mm -hmm. the king. He saves the princess right. for the king. Right. And then the king knights him. When the king approves of him, then he has attained his goal. Mm -hmm. It's not to become the king. Right. Today, children are raised on superheroes. Terrible. Yes. <laughs> Terrible. Everyone has to be the top. Nobody wants to serve the higher. So, the, 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 the victim mentality that we're born into trouble and we can't help ourselves and we need to be protected and saved and it's so depressing, it's so morbid, and so not true. Right. 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 The truth is, what God himself says in the Torah, God created the world because it's not good to be alone. Hmm. <coughs> what a confession. God is saying, I can't be alone. So who's the victim? Mm. Who's needy? <coughs> Except that God being needy is magnificent. Really. It's so romantic. It's so humble. Absolutely. You're perfect. You're all-powerful. You're the original being. You're everything. And you're not enough. Mm. And with me, you're enough? That is so humble. Mm. One of my favorite things in support of what you just said is that I was shocked when I learned that humans, um, our place is even above the angels because we have free will and we were made in the image of God and we have the powers of creation in a way that most, uh, in, the, in the way that angels don't. Angels are a transmission of God's will, but we can actually create angels with our will. And that's a very, very powerful state for us to hold. It's, it's an amazing state for us to hold. And so when I have been told that our purpose as humans is ultimately tikkun olam, 
the healing of the world and the healing of ourselves. There's so much more behind that than the idea of just healing our childhood wounds or healing our psychological states. It's, it's like, wow, we're really given, God-given rights and powers to reach those dispersed sparks, you know, find them, pull them out of darkness and, and basically replicate for ourselves psychologically those parts of ourselves that we thought were not good or shameful or bad and pull those back into the whole. And that's what ultimately is considered self-actualization. It's the peak of reaching a very powerful psychological healed state. And so within the human, we are a microcosm of that macrocosm that we are meant to replicate by pulling even internally those sparks that we've kind of put off into the corners, into the shadows, and pulling them into ourselves. So my next question for you, Rabbi, is the same question that put me in a path to go after my doctorate degrees. The question was a simple one. It was, if the Dalai Lama had a wife and kids, would he be the Dalai Lama? <laughs> that's where we we struggle that's where we have that's where we have you know that's the, this whole idea of spiritual bypass which i've engaged in where i became incredible at meditating i could go to a monastery and spend 18 hours a day meditating and it was bliss for me yet when i came into the observance of keeping Shabbat and keeping Kashrut, these were more difficult for me than meditating for 18 hours a day. So, because that was a way. And we are the only religion in the world, as I know it, that we need to be mystics in the world. We need to be mystical and still be in the world, impacting it, affecting it, still being married, still having children, whereas if you're a mystical Christian, you can go be a priest. To me, that's easy. Or a nun, or Buddhist, or any other religion I've studied. We're the only ones that know you are still bound by the laws to procreate, have a wife or husband, have children, and that's when trouble arises. <laughs> That's when the challenges come. Can you speak to that, please? I discovered that in a different way. We had this women's program in Minnesota in the 70s. Every intelligent Jewish kid was in India or China or Tibet practicing, Judaism, practicing Buddhism. Wow. All of a sudden, they start trickling back. And many of them came to our program in Minnesota. Why did they come back? Their guru told them to. And they said, you see, they're so open-minded, they're not trying to brainwash you. But one of them, who had become literally the right-hand man of the Dalai Lama. Wow. Because she was brilliant. 
the Dalai Lama told her to go back to her tradition. Why? You see, if you practice Buddhism and you train yourself to meditate, you eventually climb the ladder of, of enlightenment mm -hmm. until you reach a level of bliss where everything is just wonderful. Jews did it in warp speed. Mm -hmm. Every Jewish kid got there, got the meditation down, did the whole thing. They were devoted. They, and they get to the highest level of bliss, and they're feeling wonderful. And they come to the Dalai Lama and say, okay, what can we do now? He said, no, now, no. That's it. You, no, you That's don't have it. to do anything. You're happy. And they said, yes, so let's do something. Wow. Said, get out of here. You don't belong here. Wow. You're going to mess up our whole religion. Huh? <laughs> Go back to Judaism. <laughs> because it's true. If we can reach the state of total bliss, we would become so active and so ambitious. That's so funny. Wow. Why? Because if I can relax me, I become so conscious of God and what he needs and what he wants that I will devote myself completely mm. to him. So bliss is not an end, it's a tool. Mm. We should all be blissful so that we can stop worrying about ourselves and do what we were born to do and that is make God's plan work for him.